Welcome to episode 108 of the Blooms of Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. How are you tonight, Dermot? Very good. Very good. Um, I'm trying to think of what I want to say next. Yes, this is the podcast where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. But did you know we're also a blog that writes about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses? Okay. Did you know that? They still exist. They just do still exist. Um, and I am working on a new blog post right now. Uh, it's coming along quite well. And it's about one of the great mysteries of Ulysses, the postcard that says UP up. Do you know about UP up? Is he related to IP freely? <laughs> Not related to IP freely. Or is he? Um, so it's a, from a section you haven't read yet, Dermot, but uh, there's a man named Dennis Breen who receives a postcard that just says U, just the letters UP and then up. And it's enough that he wants to sue for 10,000 pounds uh, for libel and uh, w what UP up actually means is never revealed so there are lots of competing theories about what it might mean some of which might surprise you uh, but as I'm still working on it I love to hear listener interpretations of this um, I've gotten a few and I, I said I'd read some of my favorites but um, a lot of the ones I've received are kind of things that have come up in my reading. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, I always like a good surprise. And I got this great email from a listener called Margaret. And uh, I'd like you to read her email because it was something that I'd never thought about. I have always wondered how come Mrs. Breen is the one carrying the folded postcard? Wouldn't it make much more sense for poor old Dennis Breen to be the one with the incriminating evidence? Especially since he is the person who got it this morning. And the one traipsing around the lawyer's offices looking for help to take an action for £10,000. The lawyers are probably ki killed, telling him to go home and bring back the evidence. And all the while, it's in Mrs. Breen's handbag outside on the street. Yes, so uh, for Dermot and folks who aren't familiar with this passage, uh, Bloom finds out this in information because he stopped on the street by an old friend of his, old girlfriend, mm. named uh, Josie Breen, nay Powell. And she's the one that pulls the postcard out of her handbag and tells Bloom. And her husband is in the solicitor's office looking for John Henry Menton, who we've mm -hmm. talked about on the podcast. We'll talk about him in the next episode, not today. Um, but I would say to Margaret, I have a, a couple ideas. Number one, and I think any uh, female listeners might relate to this. If you've been in relationships with men, they... Don't carry handbags, and if you do, they will use their you as their personal purse. Uh, you would never do this, right? Where you're carrying something, the man is carrying something that annoys him, and he goes, can you just put that in your purse? Babe, can you just put that in your purse? So it could be an issue of that. Mm -hmm. uh, it could just be that I think Mrs. Breen is much more responsible than Mr. Breen, mm -hmm. so she's held on to it for safekeeping, or that they were meant to go into the the solicitor's office together and she saw bloom and use it as an excuse for a brief reprieve from her husband who's a described as a bit of a maniac in the book uh so those are my thoughts on that hmm. do you have any thoughts none because i haven't read it yeah fair enough but men are men are terrible aren't they 
using women like that. Yeah. Isn't that off? Yeah. Carry your own, carry your own handbag, guys. So it's 2023. You can do whatever you want. Mm, little uh, fanny pack. <laughs> See, actually, you you will use an over-the-shoulder bag. So mm-hmm. you, I don't know that you've ever asked me to put things in my in my bag for you. Mm. The only person who ever mocked me for it, ridiculing my masculinity, was uh, a lady. So. Mm. Well, that was very sexist of her, she's and a, I don't a, support that. She's view. a very strong feminist, also, mm-hmm. but I don't. I don't think she's thinking about her ideology too closely. I think a, a handbag is uh, gender neutral at best. So. Bit, it was just a shoulder bag. Like what yeah. the hell? Yeah, I've always liked that about you, women. If you're in, if you're into that sort of thing, marry a man who carries a handbag. All right. Uh, I was going to ask you about artwork for this episode. If you're new to Blooms and Barnacles, this guy here. Dermot is our artist, um, but you don't have any artwork done yet. But mm-hmm. I want you to think about it as we talk today. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, I'm going to try to remember to ask if you have any ideas. Okay. It's a lovely artwork of a donkey for the last one. If you haven't seen that, you can go to our website. Bloomsandbarnacles.com. Mm-hmm. And check it out. And also, if you want to tell me what you think about UP Up, send me an email, blooms and and barnacles at gmail.com or find me on twitter instagram or facebook uh let's see a few shout outs before we get into the main part of the episode today this is our second to last hades episode by the way do you have any feelings about that no it's nice ticking another one off how many is chapters is this now six out uh, of 18 out of 18 okay so you might delude yourself into thinking we're a third of the way through it you would delude yourself because I think uh, Cersei in particular is around 200 to 250 pages. So I think, though, I've always thought Cersei is going to be like, you're going to go through that with a machete. But so much of Cersei is just hallucinatory versions of things we've already seen. Okay. That I, I wonder if it really, you know, we'll, we'll have covered a lot of it by the time we get there. Okay. We won't talk. We don't talk about Oxen the Sun. You... It's a it's a, it's a wonderful use of the English language. Uh, I want to talk about speaking of great use of the English language. We have a, a new bonus episode coming up on our Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com/barnaclecast. And um, speaking of guardians of the English language, I just recorded the other day a wonderful interview with Dr. Alice Ryan, who is the new newly hired curator at the James Joyce Tower and Museum. Um, she was really fun and fantastic. Very interesting. Um, I learned a lot from her. Uh, her background is not only in James Joyce, but in green buildings. So we have a really interesting talk about uh, the future of the tower when it comes to climate change mm-hmm. and, and preserving buildings in Dublin in general with climate change in mind. And uh, I it really was very interesting for me. And she also has a lot to say about Joseph Campbell. So... Uh, we discussed those and other things. Uh, please check those out. Um, for a small donation a month, you get um, a bonus episode, and you can see the video version of this, plus you get early episodes. So check that out. So- we'll also put a trailer of that on YouTube, like a little yep. three, four-minute mm-hmm. teaser kind of thing mm-hmm. to give you a feel for it. Yeah, I'll try to remember to put those on our social media. And thank you if you are a subscriber. Thank you to everyone who's donated on PayPal and Patreon. If you'd like to Join, go to our website, 
bloomsandbarnacles.com. And click on the upper right-hand corner and you find links to all that. We It really does help us keep the ring light on. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to help us in a non-monetary fashion, uh, leave a review on your podcast app of choice or tell a friend. If you have a friend who's into Joyce, tell them. Um, and finally, if you want to keep up with us, we have a free newsletter, which again, you can find at our website. Blimsandbarnacles.com. That's right. And stay tuned at the end of this episode. We have a short interview with a musician named Jordan Levesque from our former home of Portland, Oregon, who has rec uh, recorded some music that was heavily influenced by Joyce. And I'm going to talk to him about that. So stick around after the usual show for that conversation. I think it'll be fun. So... Without further ado, should yep. we get into the text? Yes. We are rounding out Hades. Next episode will be our final Hades episode. So we're on pages 110 to 112 in my edition of Ulysses, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition. And Dermot's going to read the first part of this passage. We're still in Glasnevin Cemetery. Great. Fun place. The mourners moved away slowly without aim by devious paths, staying at whiles to read a name on a tomb. Let us go round by the chief's grave, Hines said. We have time. Let us, Mr. Power said. They turned to the right, following their slow thoughts. With awe, Mr. Power's blank voice spoke. Some day he's not in that grave at all. That the coffin was filled with stones. That one day he will come again. Hines shook his head. Parnell will never come again, he said. He's there. All that was mortal of him. Peace to his ashes. Thank you so much. What do you think? So it's Charles Stuart Parnell, the um, parliamentary Irish party leader, um, mm -hmm. fallen um, during a sex scandal. Mm -hmm. Yep, I was going to ask you who he was. Mm -hmm. uh, his political project was Home Rule, uh, much beloved of the Joyces, mm -hmm. and uh, is indeed buried in Glasnevin Cemetery. He died in the 1890s. Um, so uh, I, I've... I've entitled this uh, section of my notes. I have a little a little song I'd like to think, sing for you. Tell me what you think of it. Okay. <clears throat> Parnell has died. Parnell has risen. Parnell will come again. This is why you want to get the Patreon so you can see <laughs> the video. Because I, I stare at you as I sing. <laughs> oh, God. Um... We'll, we'll come back to that. You might have win the Eurovision again with that one. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, there's this interesting little conspiracy theory here I'll get into in a moment. But I've got a few other little notes. So Parnell is a presence in the works of Joyce more generally. Um, and in Ulysses, he also corresponds with a character in the Odyssey, who Odysseus meets in the underworld. And that would be Agamemnon. Uh, who was a great chief of the Greeks. Parnell is referred to here as the chief by Joe Hines, the reporter. Um, and Odysseus spoke at length to Agamemnon in the underworld. Uh, Bloom doesn't speak to Parnell at all because he's a sideways Odysseus, so he does things differently. Okay. Um, but I think it's his status as a mighty chieftain of his people that mm. connects him. It's a... It's a loose connection. I think I think it's safe to say. And I think Parnell would be a Protestant, right? Or, he was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he Anglo Irish ascendancy. Mm -hmm. Like he yes. for any listeners abroad um who are fixated on the Catholic Protestant thing and mm -hmm. this especially to you Irish Americans, uh it's it's a lot more complex than that. And mm -hmm. you have a lot of bleed over from people with different mm -hmm. identities 
Um, and most of the most uh, outstanding uh, leaders of Irish independence movements were not strictly Irish Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, ethnically Catholic, like the Fitzgeralds uh, mm-hmm. in the early 1798, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a lot of Irish people, of course, in England who we regard as Irish, like mm-hmm. Shane McGowan or the Pogues. Nobody mm-hmm. would regard him as English. Even the English wouldn't have him. Like, But he's born in London, raised in London. So, mm-hmm. um, But he, Parnell is one of these people too, where, like W.B. Yeats as well. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, there is a grey area between, but a much lower to, to, to like, unlike the Vikings and previous people, like you can mm-hmm. still sense the difference in the mm-hmm. in that uh, cast of people yeah. or class of people. And, but no, it's it's interesting to see how they basically went. We're starting to go native and become mm-hmm. Irish yeah. and lose mm-hmm. some of the affiliation with Britain, the mainland, or whatever they want to call it. Mm-hmm. I I would say too. Um, I and I will preface this by saying I think Parnell's, you know, aims were genuine, but I I think um, you know the people who were landlords or landholders or you know very wealthy ascendancy types in ireland wanted to be treated equally to their peers in the Mm -hmm. united kingdom and i think some of the the struggle there was for equal recognition of them uh, themselves as people of stature and not so much out of interest for helping poor catholic people right right so right yeah, the um, some of the unionists were. I think we had this discussion before in a mm-hmm. previous article. Some early unionists were against the Act of Union because it took away their local power mm. in Dublin and gave it to London. Mm-hmm. And their attitude was, we should be able mm-hmm. to do what we want in Dublin, but we'll still be loyal British mm-hmm. subjects. So it's a mixture. You've got a very big spectrum of people mm-hmm. uh, from one motivation to like people like James Connolly and Podrick Pierce, winning mm-hmm. in the wings, for whom Parnell's like parliamentarian. Devolutionism yeah. was nowhere near close enough, and it wasn't. It wasn't mm-hmm. anywhere near close enough. There are a lot of that... competing interests during that period. Yeah. It wasn't at all guaranteed that it shook out the way it did. No. Yeah. Um, so if, if World War One hadn't broken out, the Home Rule Bill would have passed, and we would have looked at a very strange, to us, a very strange timeline, mm-hmm. where everybody was expecting the Unionists in the north of Ireland to basically go to war with the called nationalists or the devolution the home rule Irish in the south and in the north and the British army constitutionally would have had to have sided with the parliamentarians the the uh, the Parnellites mm-hmm. against the Northern Ireland unionist population mm-hmm. if they had gone to war mm-hmm. they would have been not loyalist at all at that point that to us that's just a mind warp mm-hmm. like, but again yeah. it just that the the alternate timeline taken out of existence by two bullets in Sarajevo mm-hmm. would have been very strange mm-hmm. and it would have like demolished like and, and Parnell's tradition would have survived in a way it maybe it didn't mm-hmm. in 1916 when it gets mm-hmm. obliterated by the lads in yeah. Easter. Joyce did not include Gavrilo Princip in his schema, schemata. Mm-hmm. That whole thing is very strange. It is very strange. Um, but I'd really like to talk about Let's Parnell. Let's get on to Parnell. Have you been to Parnell's grave in Glasnevin? We were near it, weren't we? We were near it, yeah. You've been quite near it. I don't think we ever went up to it, though. As a child, we visited Avondale because it's not far from my hometown. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know we were in the the grounds of it not too long ago. The house was closed. I think they were renovating it. Yeah. I'd like to go there properly sometime. I would love to do a podcast episode on that as well. Mm so Parnell's grave is unusual um, in many ways. So it's located very near to the mortuary cha- cha- chapel, which we've we've been to. Mm-hmm. I think we just we didn't walk over to the chief's grave, so okay. slap on the wrist for that. Um, so 
you know, Dignam's grave is kind of on the other side of the cemetery. So they're when they make their way by devious paths, they've they've gone quite a quite a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, talk about Parnell's death a little bit. Um, we we've talked in previous episodes about having a, a well attended funeral is um, is very important to Irish people. Uh, do you know how many people attended Parnell's funeral? A lot. That is, you're correct. <laughs> Good job. Two hundred thousand is the, the estimate I have yeah. in my notes here. Um, and we've talked about Ivy Day just in the previous episode. And of course, Ivy Day in the committee room is a, a Joyce short story. Um, Ivy Day is in October, and it's the it's the commemoration of Parnell's death day. Um, and the reason it's called Ivy Day is because all of these mourners who showed up to Glasnevin to see Parnell buried um, plucked leaves of ivy from the walls of Glasnevin and tucked them into their buttonhole. Hmm. So ivy became a symbol of uh, Parnellism. Um, the area where he's buried, um, we talked about uh, Daniel O'Connell has this massive round tower. Um, you know, there are other, we, we talked about the, I think, Bishop McKinney, Cabe, who has this big, you know, fancy, uh, you know, mausoleum across from the Mortuary Chapel. Um, the ground chosen for Parnell's grave was originally a grave for the poor, and um, f- eventually for a, a cholera grave in 1849, um, because it was Parnell's final wish to be buried among the common men and women of Ireland, rather than be entombed in some fancy marble mausoleum. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, yeah, he's buried amongst cholera victims and the the nameless poor, hmm. um, this Gilchrist type people. So, hmm. um, so uh, Parnell's grave marker is also unusual. So there's a picture here. Describe what you see. Of course, we'll put this in our show notes. Just a big rock with his name on it. Mm-hmm. Parnell. That's it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't there's no grandiosity or anything. No. Other than the fact that's a, a very big grave yeah. marker. No. It's, yeah, it's a it's a a an unhewn piece of Wicklow granite, mm-hmm. which he was from County Wicklow. Um, yeah, and it only says Parnell. It doesn't even say his first name. It doesn't say his birth or death dates. It just yeah. says Parnell. Um, what year was the stone erected over his grave? I have no idea. Nineteen forty. Hmm, they took their time. Yeah, they certainly did. Another delayed monument to <clears throat> Parnell. We talked about how the the Parnell monument at the north end of o'connell street was you know was very delayed Mm -hmm. uh this was another very delayed monument to the the chief as they call them Mm. so when the the men are there in 1904 they would just be looking at a patch of open grass in a a circle right um and the monument wouldn't be there for you know another 36 years wow he died in 1891 Mm. i have here in my so it's quite a long stretch. Yeah. Almost 50 years with no monument. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any thoughts? No, it's just a shabby treatment to wait that long. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, I know the early state was broke, but it's it's a big rock. Like, you could put something there. Yeah, and they there wasn't carved by stonemasons except to put the name on it. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a piece of Wicklow. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Parnell's place in Ulysses. This won't be the last time we talk about it. Because as I've said, he looms very large, and he kind of takes on the role as a Moses figure, as this uh, you know legendary leader who was trying to lead his people from the house of bondage and mm-hmm. did, never quite saw the promised land. 
Um, and here, I think he's sort of portrayed as a Christ figure, right? Um, where Mr. Power is talking about the sort of odd conspiracy theory that uh, my source on this is the Gifford and Seidman annotation, but um, apparently people believed that um, Parnell didn't really die. Mm-hmm. You know that they they put him in the tomb, but that he he will one day rise and come again. Right, and that's what Mr. Power says. And Jack, or not Jack, sorry, Jack Power and Joe Hines. Hines very quickly says no that he's he's in the ground. Yeah. Um, so people, there was this sort of theory at the time, as I was saying, that people thought that Parnell had gone into hiding in South Africa mm-hmm. and then he'd one day come back. Right. Um, part of this was that Parnell died very young. He was 45 when he died. Oh, God. Um, he died of pneumonia very suddenly. I mean, it's it's a, a span of a couple of years between like his the, the highest of his highs and his death. That's shocking. Yeah. yeah. So he could have, in theory, lived into the 1930s or 40s. like. Yeah. Easily, like another forty more years could have happened, and he could have died in the third easily in the nineteen thirties. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly lived to see the Home Rule Bill passed, even if he were no longer an MP. But also, then, also seen it destroyed. Yes, <laughs> yeah. and that yeah, and then um, Irish independence. So yeah, um, he's and he had a closed casket funeral. Is the other reason too? He was not put on display following his death. So as far as we can tell, he may now be parting with Tupac and Elvis, mm-hmm. um, wherever the people who fake their deaths go. Yeah, Jim um, Morrison, he's in there too, on the island. Sure. Do people think that Jim Morrison didn't die? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Andy Kaufman's there. Andy Kaufman, Jim Morrison, quite a few mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Uh, so good, good times. Um, yeah. So uh, do you want me to sing the song again? Please don't. <laughs> so... But, uh, yeah, Heinz very quickly says no. Parnell will not come again. And by extension, Joyce is also saying no hmm. to that particular theory. Yeah. As much as you might like him to, he's he's gone. Yeah. Um, and with it, his project for Ireland. So hmm. there's quite a lot in that little statement of fact, I would say. Yep. Mr. Bloom walked unheeded among his grove by saddened angels, crosses, broken pillars, Family vaults, stone hopes praying with upcast eyes, old Ireland's hearts and hands. More sensible to spend the money on some charity for the living. Pray for the repose of the soul of, does anybody really? Plant them and have done with them, like down a coal chute, then lump them together to save time. All souls day. All right, so these are Bloom's thoughts. What are your thoughts? He's a brutally pragmatic man, mm-hmm. um, but he's kind of got a point, mm-hmm. you know. Um, like, one of the scandals in the funeral industry is they, uh, when your loved ones died, they try to upsell mm-hmm. and they'll show you the, well, we can give you the, the $300, $400, this is an American home, mm-hmm. the $400 coffin, but then they'll, mm-hmm. these are the others, and then they'll walk you by the more expensive models until these mm-hmm. poor families are like guilted into mm-hmm. going into debt for a, a coffin that's going to be eaten by worms. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. All you're doing is mixing up your loved one's body with a lot of chemicals. So, yeah, it's horrible. Um, mm-hmm. the, 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 certainly the coffin should be the simplest, like, mm-hmm. lightest box. There's no reason for cushions mm-hmm. or anything like that. There's legal, at least in the U.S., to be buried in a shroud as well. You don't mm-hmm. even have to have a coffin. So. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple things I want to point out here. First of all is a gravestone iconography. So if you'd like to know more about uh, gravestone iconography from this era, I really recommend you go back and check out episode 100 with Martin Mooney, where we kind of walk around Glasnevin Cemetery and he points out lots of images on 
graves. Um, most of the ones here are pretty straightforward. The only one I wanted to point out is the broken pillar. Uh, do you remember the symbolism of a broken pillar? Oh, it's uh, somebody struck down in the prime of their life. That's exactly it? right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and famously in Glasnevin, um, Arthur Griffith, the founder of Sinn Féin, he is buried beneath a broken pillar. And uh, I have an image here of his grave. Mm -hmm. So describe what you see. It's, I don't know who it is. Standing. That is the Hungarian ambassador to Ireland, oh. uh, laying a wreath, I believe, at the 100th anniversary of Griffith's death. Oh, okay. Do you know why a, the Hungarian ambassador in particular would want to be photographed with Arthur Griffith's grave? Because Griffith had an Austro-Hungarian plan for mm -hmm. Ireland. Yes. Uh, and the UK. It was a very mm -hmm. strange one by our standards, mm -hmm. but all the ideas they were kicking around. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, it was that we should have an Austro-Hungarian equivalent with Ireland and the UK. Mm -hmm. It's great. Okay, one thing to do it in theory. In practice, you're just going to be a vassal. Like, there's mm -hmm. no way. But yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so there's this sort of um, political and symbolic linkage between Hungary and Ireland mm -hmm. that I was not aware of until recently. I have a blog post in the back catalog called Leopold Bloom and the House of Habsburg. Once we get into the Aeolus material, we will record a podcast about this, but... Um, Ireland and Hungary both have this kind of affinity for one another as like the smaller state that's gotten picked on by the big empires, mm -hmm. in their case, Austria, right. and Ireland's case, of course, the British Empire. So um, it's very interesting, yeah. Um, let's see, Bloom mentions the phrase, Old Ireland's Hearts and Hands. Do you know this phrase? No. It's the title of a sort of very sentimental, patriotic song. So in context, um, Bloom says, Stone hopes praying with upcast eyes. So, you know, sort of like, you know, hands, angels hands and whatnot. To the sky. Mm -hmm. Old Ireland's hearts and hands. So uh, this interpretation comes from a really excellent book by scholar Zach Bowen called um, musical illusions in the works of, in, in, I think it's in Ulysses. Uh, you'll find a link uh, in the show notes. Very good book. But he said this is meant to play on the piety of these statues, sort of praying with up, upcast eyes. And this combines in Bloom's mind with the piety of patriotism and especially the veneration of Parnell, who is a sort of secular saint. Mm -hmm. right? You could see the almost quasi religious views of. He might come again and save us, you yes. know. Um, like religious piety, Bloom is really not moved by political piety either, um, where, you know, he says it's more sensible to spend the money on some charity for the living, hmm. you know, rather than giving money. I want to see what he says here. Um, yeah, giving, spending a lot of money on a, a massive grave marker yeah. or, you know, and the implication here is also in, sort of page you know patriotic pursuits maybe give it to the people who need it mm -hmm. most um he also references all souls day starting to get in here kind of how quickly people are forgotten once they die we all kind of just lump them together they lose their individuality and in death right which we've talked a lot about in the symbolism of the hats yeah you know they all they all become hatless you get lumped together right. and the hat allows you to hold on to your identity like the last part of the dead when he mm -hmm. has the vision of the whole whole you know Mm -hmm. the, the, I forget the precise terminology, but the whole host of the dead, like all the shades are all like fluttering together mm -hmm. in the mass. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm. He mentions here too, so this is going to jog your memory from maybe 
school days or something like that. He mentions All Souls Day. When is All Souls Day? Uh, that's Halloween, isn't it? Uh, or is it something else? I thought it was Halloween. Halloween is the eve of All Saints Day, oh. which is November 1st. Well, then I have no idea. It's November 2nd. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, November 1st is the veneration of All Saints. Uh-huh. November 2nd is the veneration of All Souls. It is the liturgical commemoration of souls in purgatory. And uh, once you're in purgatory, you all get lumped together mm-hmm. in one, one day rather than being remembered as individuals. Mm-hmm. So... Any thoughts? No, no. All right. Dharma's going to read some more. 27th, I'll be at his grave. Ten shillings for the gardener. He keeps it free of weeds. Old man himself, bent down double with his shears clipping, near death's door. Who passed away? Who departed this life? As if they did it of their own accord. Got the shove, all of them, who kicked the bucket. More interesting if they told you what they were. So-and-so, wheelwright. I travel for Cork Lino. I paid five shillings in the pound, or a woman's with her saucepan. I cooked good Irish stew. Eulogy in a country churchyard, it ought to be that poem of whose is it Wordsworth or Thomas Campbell? Entered into rest, the Protestants put it, old Dr. Murrins. The great physician called him home. Well, it's God's acre for them. Nice country residence, newly plastered and painted, Ideal spot to have a quiet smoke and read the church times. Marriage ads, they never tried to beautify. Rusty wreaths hung on knobs, garlands of bronze foil. Better value that for the money. Still, the flowers are more poetical. The other gets rather tiresome, never withering. Expresses nothing, immortels. Okay, thoughts. Again, his thoughts go very dark mm-hmm. uh, about the whole very rituals. unsentimental, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, very unsentimental. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's ta- he's thinking about Rudy's grave. Twenty uh, seventh, I'll be at his grave. So his father died on the twenty seventh of oh, June. Oh, so he's going to visit his father now. That's, that's right. His, that's yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he's paying ten shillings to to keep it clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's also like, well, he's old too. So how long is he gonna? You know, he'll kick the bucket too. Yeah, and I think Bloom's grief is kind of the source of his unsentimentality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because mm. he thinks of all these euphemisms for death, mm-hmm. but they kind of, um, yeah, they try to paper over um, the sadness and hardness of, of losing someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bloom, for his part, thinks it's better to remember people for what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like. He says, traveled for Cork Lino, uh, which is uh, the the job of Gertie McDowell's father, mm-hmm. uh, who you haven't met yet. But, mm. um, yeah, what do you think? Oh, it's, it's fairly clean. Yeah, you can parse that really mm-hmm. well. Who's Dr. Murrin again? Dr. Murrin is unknown. He appears twice in Ulysses here and later in Lestragonians, but mm-hmm. I think he's, he's kind of just a name. So it's saying, uh, entered into rest, the Protestants put it. So that's how Protestants euf- euphemize death. Old Dr. Murrins. So that's implying that old Dr. Murrin uh, said, entered into rest. Mm-hmm. Um, the great vis- physician called him home. That must be another Protestant one. Right. Well, it's God's acre for them. I think God's acre is specifically in, in English usage. Mm. And then he kind of jokes with, oh, God's acre, nice country residence. I was just sitting around reading the church times and they're God's acre, you know, Um, because it's another way Bloom kind of copes with the 
sadness as he makes little jokes to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one little joke here I really want to point out that's easy to go right by, um, which is, he says, eulogy in a country court, uh, excuse me, eulogy in a country churchyard, it ought to be that poem of whose is it, Wordsworth or Thomas Campbell. Do you know what this is, this is an allusion to? No. So there's a very famous poem called Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard by Thomas Gray. Uh, I'd never heard of this, so I don't want to get too high on my horse here. But uh, I guess it was commonly memorized by school children in that time. So it's sort of one of those things everyone would have known because you learned it in school. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a really, it seems like a pretty common mistake is people will call it a eulogy rather than an elegy. And, and what is the difference between a eulogy and an elegy? A eulogy is a funeral oration. Mm-hmm. An elegy, I think it can't be funereal then if it's... Uh... They're both funereal. Are they? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But you, when you see the, the prefix eu, you, what does that mean? It comes from Greek. Mm, euphemism, euphonic. Mm-hmm. I am trying to pull it out of my brain. Utopia. Mm-hmm. Is that where that would have come from? Okay. It means good. Okay. It means something good. Euphonia, euphonia is a good sound. Hmm. Um, utopia is a, you know, it's a good society. Okay. Uh, euphemism, you make something sound more gooder. Hmm. Okay. And a eulogy, and the logi, logos means... Word, yeah. Yeah, so eulogy is you're saying good words about someone, right? It's yes. literally what it means. So a eulogy is like a like celebration of a person's life. Mm-hmm. You get up and you say all the great things they did. Right. An elegy, however, is a, it's a poem of lamentation. So you're really expressing sadness. Mm. Um, a eulogy can be funny. You can remember the funny things that person did. Um, you know, it, it's it's a celebration. It, you know, there, there could be some joy in it. We've lost this person, but their time with us was great. Elegy is very sad. Mm. It's, it's, it's all about being in sadness, which both of which are important parts of grieving, I think. Um, but people will look at this as, oh, Bloom makes so many mistakes. He think it, he thinks that it's eulogy in a country churchyard, but really it's an elegy and Bloom just doesn't know. Bloom probably doesn't know because notice he says eulogy in a country churchyard. It ought to be. Hmm. He's kind of punching up the, (laughs) the poem here. He's saying it would have been better if it was a eulogy, you know, say all the good things that you're your 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 lost loved one did Mm. don't don't lament don't be sad think of the good things Mm -hmm. think of how great the stew was or how well they traveled for corcolino or whatever it was that they did that um and i i think there's the there's an optimism to that we see with bloom um and that comes through here it's his way of coping with the sadness uh you asked me off camera this word immortel which is a french word and this means uh it looks like immortal, so that's the right way to look at it. And these are plants whose flowers can be dried without losing color or form. Mm. So they seem immortal. I mean, they're, they're not. A dried plant is a dead plant. Right. Yeah. Right. Any thoughts? No, no. All right. Yeah. A bird sat tamely perched on a poplar branch, like stuffed, like the wedding present Alderman Hooper gave us. Who? Not a budge out of him. Knows there are no catapults to let fly at him. Dead animal, even sadder. Silly Millie burying the little dead bird in the kitchen matchbox, a daisy chain and bits of broken chainies on the grave. All right. Thoughts? Mm. Uh, so he's thinking about uh, an actual animal, a bird, who's mm-hmm. alive, but mm-hmm. it's not moving. So it gets him thinking about stuffed taxidermy, stuffed mm-hmm. animals. 
and uh, so he's been given a wedding present of a stuffed a stuffed uh, owl a stuffed to be owl. specific who we will meet in Ithaca okay uh, it was a present from the alderman John Hooper who mm. was a real person okay and he um, gave them the blooms of stuffed owl which has always struck me as a really odd present to give yeah Silly Millie burying the little dead bird in the kitchen matchbox so that she's found like a dead bird and mm-hmm. gives a little funeral. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I found this interesting. So Silly Millie burying the little dead bird in the kitchen matchbox, a daisy chain and bits of broken chainies on the grave. So what are chainies? Chainies? Is it a daisy chain? Uh, that's a really good guess, I think, because he mentions the daisy chain. Yeah. But the, the chainies... Uh, it means broken chinaware, which oh. as soon as I saw this this week, I thought Chinese because it sounds like Chinese. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would be like in like a Dublin accent the that jo- Chinese could become the Chinese, Chinese? The Chinese, yeah, yeah, it might, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's said a certain sort of way. Mm. Um, you know what really made me realize that this probably came from Chinese is it autocorrected to Chinese when I typed it out. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I get it. Um, I'm very intri- I'm very intrigued by this. I think this was the thing that kind of captured my imagination most when I was researching this week because um, something I've noticed as an American coming to Ireland is that there's common practice of putting white, I think that sometimes they're quartz or other types of white stone or white gravel or pebbles on top of graves mm-hmm. um, in Ireland. That's a, a practice I've seen here. And my read on this is that that's what Millie's doing. She had some broken chinaware and she broke it up and put it on top of the little bird's grave right. like she'd seen in uh, cemeteries. Mm-hmm. She didn't have white stones, but she had a, like maybe a white... The closest analog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I am left with this question this week because I did not find a satisfying answer to it. Is why do Irish people put those white stones on the graves? Mm. And we think of the because uh, they did they did put quartz on um, passage the, tombs, passage yeah. tombs, and that's four, five, six thousand years ago. Yeah. So if that tradition is continuous, that's a very long tradition. And mm-hmm. the really weird thing about that is quartz is the crystal used in quartz clocks to mm-hmm. tell time. Yeah. Which is kind of spooky. Yeah. There's lots of little things like that are really weird to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one that's completely sideways to what we're talking about. The pole star, everyone knows, mariners mm-hmm. use the pole star uh, mm-hmm. to navigate around the world. There's a class of star that's very rare. It's called the sea feed variable, and they burn at the consistent brightness. So astronomers, are, we've talked about astronomy and stellar parallax mm-hmm. before, so I'll mm-hmm. tie it in that way. <laughs> okay. um, astronomers use these as a marker of distance. So if mm-hmm. you see a sea feed variable at a certain brightness, you can inter- infer the distance of that sea mm-hmm. feed variable. Polaris is a sea feed variable. Mm-hmm. If all the rare stars that thing could be, it's a sea feed. It's a mm-hmm. navigational star, not just up because of its accidental position in the sky, which is just particular to our time. Mm-hmm. A, ten, a million years from now, it will no longer be there. But the one time mm-hmm. there's humans who need that star to be there to navigate in the northern mm-hmm. hemisphere for most of them, live, it's there. It's mm-hmm. very weird. On top of that, if you were by some miracle flying through space and trying to find where you are in the 3D star void, mm-hmm. you would one way you might do it would be using a sea feed variable. So you'd still be using polar. That's very interesting. It's weird. So, but it's like that. Mm-hmm. Like, how the heck did these people? Did what was there <laughs> some magical property that they were yeah. able to infer from the quartz? Mm-hmm. What? What's going on? Yeah. So when I researched one of these episodes, I can you know there's a finite amount of time, so I don't get to fully 
chase down every little thread. Um, and this is one I ha- kind of had to let go because it's not integral to the text. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am genuinely curious. And I asked Martin, who's my graveyard expert, and he said he'd never he'd never even considered it, mm-hmm. which I th- I also found interesting. Because people here are so used to it. It's just that's what you go home it's, I Yeah, I don't know that I've seen one like that in the parts of the U.S. I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I just missed it. But if, if you know, and if you... You know, shoot me an email because um, it's really tickling my brain this week. Um, all right, let's uh, let's talk about um, Catholicism. The Sacred Heart, that is showing it. <laughs> what I said, let's talk about Catholicism, and you said the Sacred Heart, that is. I just like the way those lined up. Okay, the Sacred Heart, that is showing it. Heart on his sleeve. Ought to be sideways and red, it should be painted like a real heart. Ireland was dedicated to it, or whatever that. Seems anything but pleased. Why this infliction? Would birds come then and peck like the boy with a basket of fruit? But he said no, because they ought to have been afraid of the boy. Apollo, that was. All right. What do you think? Losing me here a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I was talking about the Sacred Heart of Jesus, right? Yeah. The Catholic iconography has got me pointing can, to it. Can, like, can you explain the Sacred Heart to... A, are non-Catholic listeners. I only know it as like a, a lot of traditional Irish families who are mm-hmm. still Catholic, fewer every day. I'll have a picture on the wall of Jesus and his heart's glowing red. Like, his, mm-hmm. like I don't know if it's like a Valentine's heart or it's like the little, you know, mm-hmm. the, the little like uh, emoji heart. Or is it like a, 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 a is it a, like an mm-hmm. actual realistic pumping one? Uh, Bloom wants it to be more like a real heart. Yeah. It's not quite either of those. It has its own stylistic nature to it. Mm-hmm. I think there's often a flame on top of it, and yeah. there's like a like ET. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I did see when I was a really edgy artist in college. I took an image of the Sacred Heart and replaced it with a glowing Apple logo, mm-hmm. like on an iMac. Oh. Or a, a MacBook. Yes. Yeah. And now St. Jobs of Cupertino watches mm-hmm. over all of us. <laughs> uh, okay. So the Sacred Heart is for I I this is a thing I spent a, some time reading about this week and I've I've boiled it all down here for you, my dear listeners. So the Sacred Heart for me was a thing that old Catholic people liked. So like people my grandparents' age, you know, who would have been young in the forties and fifties, always had Sacred Hearts in their houses. Um, Irish people, from my point of view, really seem very keen on the Sacred Heart. Um, and it seems like something that, especially like mid-century, mid-20th century was very big. These are kind of my preconceived notions that I came into this with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really common. It's, it's a, yeah, and there are graves in Glasnevin that have an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus on them. There's lots of churches that are Sacred Heart Church. Um, it's, it's a very hot devotion. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be remiss to not point out the that the heart is the correspondent organ of Hades. So we're going to get into some heart imagery here. So um, I also learned that the sacred heart is like, is a very specifically Catholic thing. And it's one of those Catholic things that other Christians find really weird. If Protestants or Orthodox Christians, other Mm. types of Christians are just like, what is going on over there? That's a really weird thing. And reading about it, I, you know, I, I kind of have to agree. I, I mean, all religion is weird and not weird, you know, so it's, this is not a criticism, but it's, it's, um, I, I think 
I had some really basic questions because when you look it up, it says, oh, it's a popular devotion. And then I thought, well, what the heck is a devotion? I don't actually know what that means. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was founded by this French nun in the 17th century called Sister Marguerite Marie or Margaret Mary Alacoc, um, who apparently Jesus appeared to her in a vision with a flaming heart. And she, she was a sickly child. And she said, if, if you help me get better, I'll dedicate my life to Christ and become a nun. And she got better. And boy, howdy, did she become a nun because she was eventually canonized, I believe. Um, she does get a shout out in Ulysses from the one and only Buck Mulligan in Scylla and Charybdis, and he refers to her as the Blessed Margaret Mary Anycock. So uh, that's what she gets for all her work. Um, and I found, finally, thanks to the Carmelite Sisters, uh, a how-to guide on how to practice the devotion of the Sacred Heart. And I'll put that in our show notes, so if, if you'd like to know. Basically, you say lots and lots and lots of prayers all day to the Sacred Heart, you start first thing in the morning saying, you know, focus, saying prayers focus on the sacred heart of Jesus. Um, you put pictures of it all around. Um, you really just focus in on the, this imagery of the sacred heart. Um, and you, if you are practicing devotion of sacred heart, you go to mass and communion on the first Friday of every month. That's a, that first Friday is a big part of it. So. You just really focus your religious worship on the, the sacred heart of Jesus and the symbolism of that, of Jesus loves you and he sacrificed for you and you know, all this kind of stuff that Bloom finds a bit perplexing of, you know, why why this affliction, you know, seems anything but pleased, but maybe, maybe the, he likes the suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not the only Father Ted reference, too, because if, if one thing I always liked about Father Ted, and I have an image here for you, I'll put this on line, too, is they always had a throw over the back of their sofa with the sacred heart on it. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Increasingly manky looking, too. <laughs> yes. Um, I will also say, I think one reason the sacred heart really started to gain traction is because it was favored by the Jesuits, who really pushed it as a popular devotion amongst Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bloom says Ireland was dedicated to it or whatever, uh, which I found intriguing. And it's true. Um, Ireland in 1873 as a country was consecrated to the Sacred Heart on Passion Sunday, which is another name for Palm Sunday. So basically, you know, when I was reading about the Carmelites' devotion to the Sacred Heart, they said you want to consecrate yourself and your family in the name of the Holy sacred heart and i think it's just like just like bestowing some kind of blessings or like a sacred right onto whatever your focus is and uh you get good energy Hmm. i mean it yeah um so ireland got all of that in 1873 he got all the blood he got all the all the all the blessing and so that's why that's such common iconography is because that was ireland's devotion as a country Mm -hmm. so um it became really really common to have images of the sacred heart in your home and sacred heart lamps specifically so you'd have a little candle and then in the 50s when ireland was electrified it was usually turned into a little light bulb um and they started they they were really big probably reached their peak in the like mid-century and then with vatican ii these kind of popular devotions were de-emphasized by the church Mm -hmm. um and i i 
think I, I didn't write this down, but I, I think the reason was is that it was just wanted to give a little bit more control back to the clergy because a devotion is something you can do individually and you don't need the intercession of the priests, which I think is quite important to the practice of Catholicism. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's incredibly common iconography. And if it seems like something your grandparents were really into, it's because that, you know, when my grandparents were in their thirties would have been the height of that. The cult. Yeah. Mm. The devotion. Um, and Bloom again questions why this infliction, why you know, all this pain, this exposed heart. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think it's an image of suffering and sacrifice that Jesus Christ does for his, his flock. Bloom is not into that. He doesn't get it. You know, but he just the, eulogy over elegy is, 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 mm. is Bloom. Right. And we find as we kind of come, you know, come in, in for a landing here at the end of Hades, Bloom really does have a very life-affirming view. He doesn't like all this suffering and misery and you know, flagellation and yeah. you know sadness. He 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 is a very life-affirming character. He's a very positive view of the world in his way, and he would rather focus on uh, the nice, you know, good things instead of just the miseries of life, which he's well acquainted with. So, mm. all right, and then there's this really weird line at the end, which I I feel like is probably where it lost you where it said, would birds come then and peck like the boy in th with the basket of fruit? But he said, no, because they ought to have been afraid of the boy. Apollo, that was. <laughs> yeah, no, All right. The only bird pecking I can think of is Prometheus's liver, but that this this doesn't ring any The liver bell. king will not make an appearance today. Okay. This is the grape king. Okay. So Bloom was exonerated earlier with the eulogy elegy thing. But he will not be exonerated here because Bloom says, oh, he was called Apollo, but he's confusing Apollo for Apelles, who was a Greek, an ancient Greek painter, mm. uh, contemporary of Alexander the Great. Um, but he's also, <laughs> this is Bloom, he's also confused Apelles for Zeuxes. Uh, Zeuxes uh, is a, a very famous and storied ancient Greek painter. None yeah. of his paintings survive, unfortunately. But yeah. the, the story is that Zeuxis was so talented as a painter that he painted grapes so realistic that a bird flew in and tried to eat the grapes from oh, the painting. Oh, lovely story. Um, so none of his work survives. Presumably it was eaten by birds. Yep. But I think that's what he's getting at here is it must have been a boy with a basket of fruit. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, why, why would the bird come and eat it? Wouldn't he be scared of the boy? So, um, all right. And our final passage for today. How many all these here once walked around Dublin, faithful departed, as you were now, so once were we. Besides, how could you remember everybody? Eyes, walk, voice. Well, the voice, yes, gramophone. Have a gramophone on every grave or keep it in the house after dinner on a Sunday. Put on poor old great-grandfather. Crark. Hello, hello, hello. I'm awfully glad. Crark. Awfully glad to see you again. Hello, hello. I'm off. Crash. Remind you of the voice like the photograph. Remind you of the face. Otherwise, you couldn't remember the face after 15 years, say. For instance, who? For instance, some fellow that died when I was in Wisdom Healy's. All right. What do you think about Bloom's gramophone for the dead? Well, he's clearly heard the Edison wax cylinder in mm -hmm. operation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, this would have been fairly novel at the time. 
because I think it's kind of bloom. Wouldn't it be funny? You know, bloom singing. Wouldn't it be funny if we had like a little gramophone recording of everybody? Mm. But this is um, really common now. You know, I mean, people yeah. will make recordings of themselves for their children or grandchildren to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all recorded all the time. I mean, you, you know, if, if I fall into a ravine or something, you have hundred, you know, over a hundred hours of me talking about Joyce, you can go back and listen to. Mm-hmm. Lucky you. <laughs> Um, but it's, uh, this is very forward thinking. I mean, we do this now. We don't have a gramophone. You don't have to like crank it up and put the big horn on there. But like, you know, we, we have photos and voice recordings that, you know, in, in the absence of someone, you know, you might return to. So, Hmm. so, um, and then I wanted to, you know, Otherwise, you can't remember the face after 15 years, say. You know, you start to forget people. I mean, unfortunately. And he says, this is almost Ithaca style here. He says, for instance, who? Uh, For instance, some fellow that died when I was in Wisdom Healy's. Uh, Who's Wisdom Healy's? What's that? No, I've forgotten. He's a stationer, Charles Wisdom Healy. He's a real person. He had a stationery shop in Dame Street. Mm. Uh, Bloom worked for him for six years. And he also likes to advertise using sandwichmen that walk. Okay, that's right. I just drew a picture of them. Okay, the hellies. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, So I found this line very interesting because something I learned while working on the Healy's blog post about their advertising tactics um, is that... um, So when Bloom worked for Wisdom Healy, he he would have left Wisdom Healy's in 1894. And it seems like... It's it's unclear. He just says he left, and I know Molly wasn't happy about it. So he either could have gotten fired or just um, left. Mm. But um, he recalls both in Lestragonians and then later in Ithaca uh, the death of a, a fictional man named Philip Gilligan who died while he worked for Wisdom Healy. Uh, so maybe he's forgetting old, you know, Philly Gill's face as, mm-hmm. as he'd like to be known. Yeah. Uh, no, he died of a. It's some disease that is from the olden times spelled P-H-T-H-I-S-I-S. Oh, God. Phthysis. I'm not even going to try. Yep, I did. Now I sound like a big... Big Aegis. Dum-dum, yeah. Um, So, yeah, Philip Gilligan died. But um, Bloom was also working in Wisdom Healy's when his son Rudy died. Mm. Which he kind of sets it up as like, oh, yeah, there was that guy that died when I was there. But think you know the the subtext between that little bit or beneath that little bit of trivia is really he's thinking about Mm -hmm. Rudy yeah um and he's worried he'll forget his son's face yes um he only ever knew him as a baby he didn't live very long and I would I would guess they maybe didn't even have a photograph of him Mm. you know which is there's an irony to that then because his other child is uh training to become a photographer yeah, people at the time when their children died, they'd have a photograph taken with the dead child. Yes, yeah. yeah. Seems weird to us, but it, it, clearly it's something to do in grief. I would say, too, it's a, a technological reason, which is especially those very old photographs, um, which by Bloom's time, this uh, I think camera technology had changed a lot, but you had to sit so long for those exposures in low light hmm. that... Um, it might have been the best time to get a picture of the child because it mm-hmm. couldn't move. Yeah. Which is very macabre. Yeah. But um, you see, 
I remember there's a picture of, of Lincoln and his family in Springfield, Illinois, that's in the Lincoln Museum there. And it's, you know, him and Mary Todd and the kids and the kid, one of the kids is all blurry because he clearly went like this. Yeah. Or he was, you know, yeah. wiggling around. So, you know, his, his kid's all blurry now in the mm-hmm. photograph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to wait. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just going to make a dark joke, but it's too dark, and you can probably guess what it is. Um, so on non-dark topics, do you have any ideas for artwork? No. How about <laughs> Something the, will come. The great, the great grandfather gramophone. Oh, there's an idea. Everybody's yeah. sitting at dinner, and then the, the gramophone's got its own, has got, hello, it's <laughs> great grandfather here. Yeah, you have his corpse at the table winding the machine. <laughs> You also have a flair for the macabre. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see if that's what Dermot does or if he thinks of something else. Uh, it'll be on our social media. Uh, so please check it out. It'll also be at bloomsandbarnacles.com with the rest of our show notes. Uh, that's us. That's it for us this episode. Stick around for my interview with Jordan Levesque. We're going to talk about Ulysses-inspired music. And uh, see you next time. See you then. Bye. I'm here with Jordan Levesque, who is a musician, who has been greatly inspired by Ulysses. Jordan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your music? And what the heck uh, it has to do with Ulysses? Yeah, my name is Jordan Levesque, and I reside in Portland, Oregon. Um, I have a band that is called Slender Gems. We've been playing music since about 2018. And yeah, we just put out another record um, last October, and a lot of the subject matter was greatly inspired by um, Ulysses, which I took on as my project over uh, COVID, kind of, to keep me going. And I I started a little bit before it and started listening to um, Blooms and Barnacles, and I finished the book sometime last year, but... um, I don't know. You you can uh, see in the um, the lyrics, which are available on Bandcamp, if you're a uh, Joyce geek, that there's 
some things that are uh, definite references to um, um, the book. Um, I would say Scylla and Charybdis is my uh, chapter that kind of like inspired me the most. And we have a song that's titled that. And there's some other um, non-Ulysses, kind of like Finnegan's Wake-esque things too, which I uh, am currently studying with another friend of mine in Vancouver, Washington. So, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, so I I listened to your music this week. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of like Stephen Malcolmus and Pavement. I don't know if, okay, I, I'm guessing those are your influences, but it, it really like struck a good like nostalgic chord, pun accidentally intended, I guess. Um, and yeah, over, overall, I found it, it was, it was very interesting. And so there's a song, the, the album is called Weaving the Wind, which I'm guessing is a, not, is a Stephen Deadless reference. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I want to talk about a couple songs in particular that really stood out as Joyce and influence. And then a third one that I just have some questions about. So you have one called Scylla and Charybdis. Is that your favorite episode of Ulysses? Or why did you choose that one to write a song about? Um, yeah, I really like that one. Um, I think, you know, I kind of got into Ulysses too. Um, from what's it, the power of myth, Joseph Campbell. And okay, he, okay. he was always talking about, um, he was just, there's so many Joyce references in that, um, series. And that, you know, that's when I saw Ulysses on the shelf and was like, oh, it's just been staring at me for years and maybe I'll give it a try. And I would listen to a lot of, uh, Joseph Campbell lectures, like at work when I was working in a kitchen a couple of years back. And a lot of them were about Joyce and Ulysses and, just kind of like, yeah, the Scylla and Charybdis and his, you know, he would talk about the metaphor for, you know, be, becoming like an allegory for logic versus mysticism and the, the you know, the Scylla versus Charybdis being, you know, um, and uh, I don't know, just kind of the, um, that, that whole thing where one side is the, you know, and you, you can see like Daedalus's mind a lot in Ulysses, like contemplating these far out kind of like overly mystical things and then he's like the side of Scylla like oh the you know reality is here and like really happened and those those historical events really happened and um I don't know it's kind of you know (laughs) difficult to uh difficult to get into but yeah kind of that metaphor between the battle between logic and mysticism and you know the the side of you know, these people that oracle out of their shadow and then, you know, the, the realism of Ulysses at the same time. And that's kind of the, the guitar battle is kind of in that song is kind of going back and forth between, you know, Scylla and Charybdis, a rock in a hard place, like one metaphor for something super out there and metaphysical and something more, you know, rational or real life. <laughs> I think one thing that really worked for me in the lyrics of that song is I, it's like a like a covert reference to Ulysses. So if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you can still get it because I think it starts out very kind of almost mundane and then becomes gradually more complex, the sort of um, struggles you're caught between the the dilemmas that are represented by Scylla and Charybdis. And uh, you can definitely see um, the influence of Stephen's philosophical dilemma from that episode of Ulysses in it. But it's like if again, if you're a Joyce geek, you'll see it. If you know, you know. And if not, you know, 
they got to read you. Anyone listening to this is has read Ulysses. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. you're you're the second person in the last week who has told me they were very inspired by Joseph Campbell to get into Ulysses. The second person I've interviewed for the podcast actually. So, um, yeah. yeah, I uh, talked to the new curate of the Joyce Tower in in Dublin, and she said that's what inspired her to get into Joyce. So and. Joyce actually coined the term monomyth in Finnegan's Wake, which I learned in that interview. So that's very oh, cool. cool. Which brings me to the next song I wanted to ask you about, which is called Cycle of Recirculation. And it seems like it had a much more, I'm not super familiar with Finnegan's Wake, but it seemed like that might have been more of the, the influence on that song. You have the river run past Adam and Eve as a recurring motif in that and sort of the the cycles, but metempsychosis, which plays in Ulysses as well. Would you like to talk about that one? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that was another kind of like my, you know, I've been studying Finnegan's Wake for like a couple of years now with one of my friends, uh, Nick in uh, Vancouver. And we're like halfway through one chapter, you know, years and, you know, like, you know, so I can't, I'm not, you know, I've never read that book, but I've listened to a lot of, you know, lectures from Joseph Campbell or different, like other discussions on it and like other books about it. And, um, yeah, definitely the, that kind of whole idea of just, you know, that Anna, Anna Livia Pluribel's the river run, you know, in that song. And it's, it's, it's kind of like at the end of the song, you know, it fades out, but the idea is that it just keeps going on forever. Like Finnegan's weight does. And, um, yeah, there's a there's a lot of Ulysses things in it, like the um, cable strand entwining, like back mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. back to the womb, like this Eden through the womb, like that kind of a reference. And there's some you know Shen and Sean Finnegan's Wake, uh, you know references in there. And uh, I think I reference like the the the, the um, parallel land with the Lychus, which is kind of like when he's in Proteus thinking about being on the furthest star and like mm-hmm. the, the augury and some like kind of Giordano Bruno, um, you know, mind wanderings that he's having. And yeah, that was just kind of the basis of the song is just that it's, a, you know, recycling everything. And there's a lot of references to different like mythological or like Dante type of things, just pastiche that are associated with Finnegan's wake or, you know, Ulysses that kind of played into that theme. Um, yeah. 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 Fantastic. And it's, um, I, well, I'd say being influenced by the works of Joyce to write music puts you in league with Kate Bush and Jefferson Airplane and other people I can't think of right now because they did that too. So it's, yeah, it seems like a, you know, very fertile well. Um, I did like to, um, oh, I, I believe it was in the Scylla and Charybdis song looking at my notes. Um, where you mentioned um, hypo no I, maybe it was in the you, you can tell me better because you know your you sh- you ought to know your lyrics better than I do but you you mentioned hypostasis and consubstantiality uh, which are concepts we keep returning to as we work through Ulysses so it was nice to hear them put to music um, because they they feel they feel very eh, like a little a little too complex to really be fun when I just talk about them. Uh, but you, you, you brought in, and you made them more artistic. So that, that's nice. Uh, and I had one song that I, I don't know if it's related to Ulysses, but I just, I'm just wondering what your, your interest is here. I, I, 
I think there's like a sub 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 genre of song that I like that I would call a rock song about an obs incredibly obscure political figure. And so you have a song on here, and I, I, let's see if I get this right, about Frederick V, Elector Palatine, Prince of Heidelberg, King of Bohemia. And I just, I'm just wondering, <laughs> what's the deal with that song? What, <laughs> what, what made you interested in it? I wrote, I wrote why in my notes, but I, I don't want to be quite that blunt. Um, but what's up with that? Uh, well, there might be some apocryphal things in that song, but it was, um, you know, there's a really funny Terrence McKenna, like, small movie he made before he died where he's, like, wearing these weird, like, Elizabethan outfits and he's visiting somewhere in, like, Bohemia doing, like, a thing on, like, his concept of, like, I don't know. I was just, like, geeking out over COVID and, like, watching these, like, really nerdy, funny, like, Terrence McKenna like lectures and um he has a thing about this guy frederick v that he thought people didn't know about and he had this whole i don't know i would say definitely check check out that documentary if you're okay, interested okay. and i basically just cribbed it from that and turned it into a a punk rock song all right <laughs> but, uh, and uh, but, uh, the, there's a like a voice that comes up and like a little in like I can't think of words right now, but there, is that Terrence McKenna that whose voice you sampled? Yeah, that's that's okay. Terrence. Okay, I was like, I feel like I should know who this is, but I can't quite place it. But um, what what are the the broad strokes of anyone who wants to check out that documentary? What why is this obscure Bohemian King of interest? Because his Wikipedia um, page is super boring. That's how yeah. I researched him. But, yeah, uh, Terrence McKenna has a cooler lecture on it. Basically, he was saying that, um, so there was like, he was one of the, the electors of, um, in like the Palatinate or something in Germany. And he ascended this like vacancy on this throne. And there was all kinds of like political unrest between, you know, Catholic and Protestant stuff going on. And um, Terence claims that he was kind of like trying to take this reformation a step further and make it about like magic and mysticism and alchemy and like freeing your mind. And he was saying like, they're like the original bohemians, like far out, whatever, you know, type of thing. And, uh, you know, the, the Habsburgs were not too happy about all that. And he was betrayed by uh, King Edward or James I and, you know, among other things, yeah, the, the Habsburgs came and wiped him out within one year. They call him the winter king and queen of just one year of reign. And he kind of got swept into the cycle of history and not enough people were talking about what, like, what he was trying to do. Which I don't know how accurate it truly is. Maybe it was Terrence being kind of fantastical, but I thought it was like a funny concept for a song. And people were like, what? And he says that at the beginning of the lecture, his long drawn out name. He's like, are you all familiar with this guy? And they're like... No. <laughs> like, I'm trying to, try yeah. to remember the exact quote, but something like every every freak should know him or something. Was, yeah, yeah. Something that really appealed to me. I can't remember quite the exact. He said, uh, "A hero, a hero to all freaks." There it is. In Germany and everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for making me aware of a a, a new odd historical character. Um, yeah, I mean, based on what I I read of him. He, I think that Terrence McKenna's probably in the 80% range for sure. I don't know about the alchemical stuff, but 
I don't know, maybe that it just didn't make it into again Wikipedia uh, yeah. summary. But yeah. uh, you know, any anyone can edit that thing. I'm not suggesting anything, but uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Uh, so I don't so, know Terrence sources on that, but <laughs> it, it, his source might be Terrence McKenna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Not not to besmirch his name, but uh. Um, so Jordan, if someone wants to hear your music, uh, do you play live in around Portland or, um, are you just online or? Yeah, we usually do. We're, we're doing shows around Portland all the time. Um, I think, uh, yeah, we usually play about once a month. Um, yeah. Slender gems. We're, we're on, uh, we're all, all the, you know, media standard Spotify Bandcamp, and, you know, we got an Instagram and stuff i don't really go on facebook except to talk to blooms and barnacles but <laughs> yep um and we're we're on instagram now so you can find us there uh, i think uh, i added i added y'all great so. yep yeah. and in our show notes um listeners you can find links to jordan's music at bandcamp and spotify and the lyrics are at the bandcamp link so it is very lyrically dense um as I'm, I'm trying my hand at music journalism here, it's very lyrically <laughs> dense, so it is worth going through and and reading the lyrics as well as just listening. And you, um, you are the you are, you are the singer in the band, correct? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm the songwriter and singer. Okay. Front man. <laughs> are your other band members? Have you indoctrinated them into the ways of of Joyce? Um, you know, I think my <laughs> uh, our drummer uh, Jack. He's, uh, <laughs> he picked up, uh, Dubliners and he was saying, he started reading a couple stories the other day. I haven't, I haven't checked in with him yet though. He was like, okay, I think I'm starting to get it. I think he read a couple Dubliners stories, but mm-hmm. yeah. All right. All right. Hey, baby steps. And I mean, the, the dead I have said before, I'll say again, I think it's probably one of the finest short stories written in the English language. So that's not bad. That's not bad. You know, that's not a bad place to start. It doesn't have all the, you know, wakey and wordplay and the you know madness of the other ones but it's it's a beautiful story and uh yeah so um jordan it's been great talking to you and uh i hope our listeners check your music out because uh they will really enjoy it i think thanks so much for talking to me thanks kelly it's been a pleasure thanks for having me on love the podcast thanks